Hey there. Nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere. This is the maiden voyage of TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast for anyone who has been affected by the loss of a loved one due to OUD, opioid use disease. Or anyone who knows someone who has been affected or anyone who is unaware of this terrible disease. I am H. Lee. And for this first episode, I am the subject of this conversation that I had with one of my former students who has her own podcast, Move the Rock, a podcast for people who are stuck in a place trying to get up over that hill, but sometimes can't seem to be able to do it. Please check out her other episodes. So why me for this first episode? Well, it's easy to talk. All you got to do is open your mouth and flap your lips. Also, if I ask people to talk with me and question them, I should do what I ask of them. You know, that's being a role model. And add in info that further shows who I am, my family, and why I'm doing a podcast. Here's a portion of my interview with Julie where I talk about my background, my family, and my story, where it all began. Hey listeners, this is Jules and you're listening to Move the Rock, a podcast for anyone who's ever felt stuck or unable to move forward in life. Today, my guest is Harris Insler. He's a former English teacher and dean of students, basketball coach. He's currently a track coach, an advocate for opioid use disorder. He's a soon-to-be podcast host, filmmaker, oh, and he's retired. <laughs> Mr. Insler, uh, it's very difficult Hi. for me not to say Mr. Insler, but welcome. Well, I think you'd have to call me Ins. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. I know that when I reached out to you, you may have been a little bit hesitant, but you look way more comfortable than I do. Well, years of uh, standing in front of people and talking, although not too much, hopefully. I started the podcast saying that I got into education because of good teachers, and you, although I never had you directly as a teacher... You subbed a couple of times. Um, I, I think you were like in, you did detention, which was the rubber room. So I know yeah. I know that you probably had experiences with my brother and all of his friends. So right. you're at right. Cary, you get tenure, you're there, right. your wife is at Adelphi. It sounds like all of the things are falling into place. And when do you have kids? Mm -hmm. Let's see, 1980. And uh, we had Rachel, my daughter, and then she got tenure. So we said, oh, let's go for another one. We had Zach. They were both just wonderful kids. I mean, not because that my I'm their father, but they were just Rachel was extremely bright, like my wife. You know, eight hundred on this SAT, seven fifty oh. on that SAT. That's Rachel Zach. His intelligence was different. I mean, he read early, reading, reading, reading. Very funny as a kid. He made us laugh. And as he grew into an adolescent and a teenager, he was very sharp with a great wit and very sarcastic. Here's one of his high school bandmates. Uh, my name is Brian Rips. Um, I would say Zach was one of my closest friends for a period of a good many years, I'd say, elementary school through at least when he graduated high school, which was one year ahead of me. 
Zach was one of the most interesting people that I had an opportunity to spend time around. And, and he had a, a great way, very quippy, a lot of one-liners. There was a period of time where I was seeing a young lady in high school and he was also dating one of my girlfriend's friends. So we just stopped by to, who knows, watch TV or something. He looked over at the girl's dog and said, what is he doing over there? And the girl said, he's chewing on his chewy asshole. And he looks at her and goes, he's got a chewy asshole? He didn't, he hadn't planned that, you know, he didn't know that that was going on, but he was ready to try and get a laugh out of people, but also an element of, I'm just a little bit, a couple of steps ahead and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that away from you. My parenting skills, I'm not saying they were great, because my wife was very careful, very, very careful, and she had the science thing, so she knew a lot about, you know, symptoms, when you got sick and this and that. You have a Facebook page. And the Facebook page is called Voices from the Opioid Crisis. That's kind of how, I mean, you and I have been friends on Facebook for a while, but when I saw this page come up, there wasn't a lot of information and it's tough to ask those questions, right? For with When you have to address people that you don't really know very well. You kind of try to put the pieces together and figure it out. One of the reasons why I reached out to you is because we have, once again, another similarity that you have a, a close family member that got involved with with drugs you know as do i gino wasn't a family member of mine but he was my best friend for over 30 years i also I uh lost a couple of my students to this you know it's something that is extremely important to me why is this this issue about the opioid crisis and opioid use disorder why is this so important to you and why did you decide to start this Facebook page? Um, that's a pretty long story. Zach, he was like nine or 10. He was getting reports from school. He's fidgeting, he doesn't focus, ADD, HTZ, whatever they called it. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, he's, he's a kid. A little hyper, but he wasn't like running all over the room. It's like they want these kids to sit with their hands folded. Um, that's what most teachers do, because then, then there's no problem. So then they, I think he was about like 11 or so, and we decided let's take him to a neurologist. He was borderline, and I'm thinking, all right, so we'll just you know try and help help him. The neurologist put him on the uh, the medication for attention. Instead of playing sports like all the cool kids, he got into music. The exercise we had, I mean, he did go to junior high track for a while, and he could have been a good runner. All the all the good <laughs> stuff is going to help get you into um, college. Exactly. At least we were able to throw Frisbee. And Zach was in this thing when he was like in 10th and 11th grade. I forgot what they called it, but you had this design on your back of your wrist, which meant no alcohol, no drugs, no nothing. Mm -hmm. I forget what they called that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he even had beer in high school, because I actually talked to one of the interviews I did for my film was with his one of his best friends. They were into music. I mean, he didn't find the right instrument until he played, he saw the drums, which if you have a basement and the band meets there, <laughs> you're like, oh, what did I do? Why couldn't he take the, uh, I don't know, any other instrument besides that? that wasn't... Exactly. So he, he was into music, which actually I was grateful for. I used to have to be the guy to take the band equipment up to the gigs. Oh, so you were the roadie. I was the roadie. <laughs> Hell yeah. He got his driver's license. He started to smoke pot when he went to college. And when he was home summers, he wanted to do it in the house. He said, no, 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 go in the garage and stand and sit in there, whatever. So can we rewind for a second? Because, you know, you're, sure. you gave me a little bit of information. 
at a certain age, they, they told you that he was borderline. So you knew that he was going to have a, a few challenges. He was on medication. Mm-hmm. Now he's going away to college. Right. Right. So, right. so there, there were some real positive things that were happening for him. And where, where did he wind up going away to college? Funny. We could have got, had him at Adelphi where he would have gotten free. <laughs> yeah. Where it wouldn't have cost anything. <laughs> pay a t- tuition instead of going to Adelphi. He went to UMass. Why? I don't know, maybe because his mom went there. And in his freshman year, he had this thing where he got up too fast, and we didn't know this, this just happened. He kind of almost blacked out. They call it some kind of thing with the heart. I forget what it was called. He actually did fall, bumped his belt. I mean, he was out for like 10 seconds. So they gave him a collar and they gave him oxys. Wow. Like not one or two. Like 30. Oxy. Yeah, that's when he got his first taste. Uh, so now I just, every time I get, I just, I get mail from them, alumni. I said, "Yeah, right." Uh, so it was the sc- so it was the school, um, like the school medical. The, yeah, they, they he didn't go to a. He went to the school infirmary. Wow, infirmary. and and that that's the doctor in the school infirmary prescribed oxycontin. If if it was a doctor, wow, I never got the whole story. That's, My wife, that's you disturbing. Know. What gets me angry about the situation is that schools high schools, and even colleges should be acting like a parent. What I mean by that is you don't want to do any harm. You know, he got his first taste there, people who who are supposed to take care of him. So I'm very angry towards doctors or a PA or whomever gave him this prescription, and more so the pharmaceutical industry who pushed these pills. And, And of course, we know now that they were punished, but they weren't punished enough. We, the survivors, are being punished every day of our lives. That's what really pisses me off. And we just have to make sure that these institutions are doing the right thing. But he was okay from that fall. So that was the main thing. And it only lasted two or three days, the pain. Right. He said, he felt better, he hurt his neck, whatever. Uh, no concussion, nothing. So I think that's where it started. And then I guess he felt pretty good. Because I didn't know anything back then about heroin. I just knew what I knew from the 60s and 70s. I didn't put anything together. So he decided to come back to Adelphi. I think he first started to live at home, but I guess he might have been chipping back then. And he said, I want to live off campus, which we thought, okay, got a job there. He's kind of doing okay. But grade-wise, he wasn't. It wasn't because of the lack of brains. Uh, We didn't realize he was probably doing stuff then. Mm -hmm. He actually told us once, and I think, think this is what happened. He said, you know, I, I went on online and he found a guy who was able to successfully live his, live his long life. The guy was in his 40s, 50s, off and on um, heroin. You know, he was able to manage it. A functional addict, I guess, is what they call it now. And oh, he must have thought, I can do this. Eventually, um, he had some, he went to the hospital once, and he wouldn't tell us why. He was over 18, so they didn't have to tell us, which is, yep. you know what? I don't care what people who talk about somebody's confidentiality, I'm his parent. And if he was doing drugs, they might have told us. And then it kind of caught up with him. A little later, he finally admitted he had a problem. Can I ask a question? Sure. So when he admitted that he had a problem, if you can think back to that, that day when he told you, do you think that he told you because he had nowhere else to turn? Do you think that he told you because he had 
gotten caught or do you think that he told you because he was kind of ready to get some help? I think he told us because there was one episode we brought him to LIJ, mm-hmm. actually the pediatric unit. He went into this unit and they put him into a unit of people with who had mental problems, mm-hmm. which was not the right place for him because he freaked out. He called us, please, please, I'll do anything. I don't want to stay here. I'll do anything. So we got references. And I think we started off with uh, a place where there was a group, mm-hmm. a group thing. So outpatient? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we would have to go. And I think he had a, he had a kick inside. Because I remember him when we first found out, he came home and he was he, we had to get him in there and uh, in the hospital. And they helped him get off of, of the heroin. And then he was doing okay. Then he went to this group thing. And after a while, he said, no, I think I'm okay. And he went back to go back to Adelphi. And he had a little apartment we rented from one of my former Carrie students. <laughs> he was going to school at Adelphi. He got into film because we would always watch movies together. And he actually made a little film, which I included in my film. There was a time when he was, I remember this because he wrecked, he just total out the car and he must have been using. I was so ashamed and stigmatized that I said, okay, I'll take care of you. Just so I, I met him and his friend, his partner in crime, and we just put it on the side of the road. We didn't know what to do. And a friend recommended this psychiatrist who was like one of the head in NASA, one of the head psychiatrists for I guess drugs in NASA. And he's kept, met him a couple of times. This is in the end of 2005. And he said, you know, Zach and I talk and we think he should move move away from here. So he went up to Massachusetts. I did what I did because I felt the shame of stigma. I really dropped the ball. And now looking back, I think it was all about ego. Like I was thinking how I felt and how his addiction was about me. Well, guess what people? I should have focused on Zach and his addiction and how I could help and find resources, treatments, no matter the scarcity of programs, which there weren't too many of, which is why I want to shout out to Shatterproof, one of the best organizations dealing with the OUD problem. They have recently developed and launched this Atlas, which vets a lot of treatment facilities in terms of how they're rated, how they're trying to do this for the whole country, because they're only in a few states now. It's a tremendous undertaking that we should all help with. You can look them up and support them, especially if OUD is affecting someone you know. You know, we call, we talk, and he joined a temp agency, and he was working. At this point, do you feel like you you have a good amount of knowledge about drugs and addiction, or are you looking back on it? Are you kind of just rolling with the punches? B, B, yeah. B, B is the answer. <laughs> uh, I, I, I knew nothing. There was nothing that I could find out except what I heard from the people that were treating him. They didn't know much either back in 2006. You know, you have your, your, there weren't that many groups. I think there was NAR, um, what was it? NARNA. NARNA. Yeah, that was it. You know, you have your, 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 your SUD stuff, you know, 12 step programs. They had the Suboxone then. There was no Narcan unless you'd be alive. I didn't know, I knew Diddley compared to what I know now. And I also want to point out that you had said your wife was, um, she had the science background, right? I heard you say like when the kids were sick, she was kind of able to 
you know, connect the dots with symptoms and that kind of thing and cut to, I guess, 20 years later and here's your son and he's kind of all caught up into this life now. What you're telling me is like, you guys just didn't know. Yeah, we were, what's that saying? We were caught, caught in a landslide. So you have it these was, parallels with your son, right? But you never, yeah, a lot. you never a really lot. got into, right. and you know, at that time when you were growing up, it it was a much more freer time when it came to, yes. to drugs. And there were, you know, huh? so many people smoked pot and so many people did psychedelics. And yeah, you know, you heard yep. the, you heard the horror stories. You heard about people getting addicted and you heard about people coming back from Vietnam addicted, but it just yep. wasn't where your head was at. I guess you just, you just, exactly. yeah, you didn't know those people and you, you knew that it was exactly. happening, but you didn't know those people. And now, yeah. now your and son, like I said, it wasn't a white middle-class thing, you know, that, that time was so weird, but like I said, because it wasn't happening a lot in white suburbia, yes, there were many, and, and I think that's part of the evolution of the drug problem is when these guys came back from the NAM, they were like, okay, man, I was smoking every day. It was good weed over there. You know, they got wounded and of course they, you know, they gave them narcotics. That was one of the beginnings beside the eighties with the crack cocaine and all mm -hmm. that stuff. Well, you know what? You're right that it wasn't it wasn't out in the open, but what I have found is that just because it doesn't affect you or just because it's not happening around you doesn't mean it's not happening. And even with all this information about cocaine and heroin, all through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, it never entered my mind that this could happen, not to me, but to someone in my family. And that's because I did not understand the disease. And neither did the industry, the medical industry. So I had my head in the sand, and I think part of it is I didn't want to admit that he could be a junkie. I never looked at him as being a junkie because he was my Zach. Of course. Right. I mean, look, all those, there were guys smoking reefer, white right? and there were guys doing, doing hard drugs. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like for the bohemians, the musicians, the actors who could afford to do that. Some of them didn't make it, but yeah, I, I agree with what you just said. It wasn't out in the open. And that's one of the reasons why I got started doing what I'm doing. I, in 2006, it, it was, the stigma was still there and very strong. Well, it sounds like it because you, you're trying to cover up this fender bender that your son had. Yes. And you said, yeah. you, I don't even know if you realize that you said it, but you felt the stigma of it and you felt ashamed. Yes. I can understand that. It's, I mean, that's how you feel when something occurs that you feel is so outside of your ordinary, your reality. So you almost want to just, let's erase it and make it go away. Right. right. So Zach did die from an opioid overdose and that was on March 15th of 2006? Yes. Okay. I, to me, you know, I got the call. I was a dean then, nine thirty something in the morning from this little hospital outside Boston. And they couldn't tell me what happened. Since I knew he was involved with heroin, I remember it was in my little office as dean. I had a very bad, bad feeling. Mm -hmm. I my body just went. 
my stomach turned over and I just rushed down to the principal and told him, Doug, I got to go. Uh, something happened with Zach. And so I hurriedly left my lesson plans and called Gail. And we didn't call my daughter as right away. And like the five-hour trip took about three hours. And I didn't want to say anything to Gail. But when we got there, told the situation, I think by then we called Rachel. I knew on that day, which was a Monday the 14th, I knew he was gone. I mean, I, I know there was no, don't tell me how I knew. I just knew, knowing his history. And then they told us, well, his organs are starting to fail. And we didn't want to, you know, we said, okay, we'll sleep on our next course of action. The next day we went in the morning. Is there anything you can do? And so we had to call time. And we told, you know, Rachel got there that night. On Monday, you know, she was only 25, I think, at the time. The doctor said, look, your organs are failing. There's nothing we can do. We were numb anyway. And I don't think, I guess after I felt some guilt about taking more life support, but I don't think we had a choice. I mean, look, science is science. There's no miracles, at least not that day. And uh, I even question myself now sometimes that we do this too soon. But, well, you know, you know maybe, I, maybe the miracle was that he lived that long because from what yeah. you're kind of explaining to me is that this was something that was not just a few months going on this was this had already been happening for quite some time so maybe not a miracle but you did have a little bit of time with him i would imagine yeah. i would imagine up and down kind of of time especially when you're you know what mostly up well listen to me then there's your miracle because that that's not something that happens all the time and you probably know that more now than you knew then right of course of course i mean i'm telling you this how i felt then i've learned a lot since then but i didn't learn right away we did our morning for, for eight days per our faith mm -hmm. seven days and then i was back in school and so was my wife and rachel went back she was in school she was Gonna get her master's in neuroscience. At that point, I was kind of numb for a while, a long while. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't went to work. I coached, exercised, I played ball all the time. I ran half marathons. I guess that's how I cope. Oh, and for the first time in my life, I went to see a therapist. Do you were you coping or were you at that point were you just surviving? No, I was surviving. I mean, this was so out of, you know, of who knows what my, I thought my life was going to be like. And the fact that there was stigma, I never told people what happened. I just said he was sick. That was my answer. He was sick. We lost my son. He was sick, which turned out now to be true. I guess I had an awakening at some point, maybe six or seven years after this, so 2013 or so. And I was thinking, you know, how am I doing? You know, like, I think it started to tick up the, the deaths from uh, opioids. Especially here on Long Island. Yes. At that time. So I'm thinking, I, I wonder how, where am I in this process, this grieving process? You know, at the time I thought, you know, I'm glad I went to therapy because I never thought I'd be going to therapy ever, ever. Because nothing really bad ever happened that was not out of the natural order of things, grandparents dying. Thank God I had my parents who lived a fairly long, long life. I think after about a month, my daughter, my wife said, you need to go to therapy. So I went. I didn't know it. And I learned later that I had PTSD. I didn't know that. I just said, okay, my son died. All right. This is happens. I've seen movies where, you know, 
the child dies of a disease or whatever, or a car accident, all the drunk driving things that we used to see on Long Island in those days. Um, now, you know, now heroin overtakes that and fentanyl, but, and I realized that, well, I'm still here. I don't think about the things I used to think about two, three, four years after he died, you know, blaming myself, blaming my wife, blaming him. This is a recording of Zach's voicemail. Hey, Dad, this is my apology call for not calling yesterday about dinner. I had fallen asleep. Uh, I was just going to take a nap, but it turned out obviously not to be a nap. Um, yeah, I called mom and already apologized. I me kind of half waking up. We're going to go back to sleep. But, uh, I just wanted to say I'm sorry again. Um, and I'll give you a call uh, later on today. Maybe we'll do dinner tonight and we don't have to get all mad at me. Um, try and reach you at work. Bye. I wish I had learned more back then, but I missed many clues. Here is one from June of 2005, nine months before he passed on. After I listened to it, I felt horrible. Why? Here's this 20-year-old suffering from OUD, apologizing to me and his mother. You can hear that he was annoyed doing it, especially at the end when he said, We don't have to get all mad at me. He was sick, apparently not sleeping well, and we expect him to be acting like a healthy human being. We knew so little about this disease. And Zach, if you can hear me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that I put my feelings above yours. So to those who have loved ones experiencing OUD or any addiction, it's easy to get lost in your own perspective. Please consider their struggle and their journey. Choose empathy. You just might save a life. It didn't hit me until I went to this group. So why I went to the group was to see how I was doing. And it's, it's GRASP. G-R-A-S-P, mm -hmm. Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing. And I would listen to the stories. I would go every month because I thought I was okay by then. But then I realized I really wasn't that. I was okay, but not okay. You know, you, you go back to the one of my blogs on the website. I call it the runaround group. If I would have done this, I could have done that. Why didn't I do this? That happened a lot. It happens a lot in the beginning. And I think it's understandable now. I think that has changed for many people, but mostly people go through this, the, the five stages, which I don't even think there's five stages. There's like 90,000 stages that you go through. And and they're not linear. You know, they, it's not like no, one happens a, and then you're done with it and the next happens. No. It, you can go through all five in less than a day. Exactly. Right. And because it was affecting our marriage. And I think we blamed the other one. But this woman had this um, therapy called EFT. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I tried it and I thought, like, I was because I had these images of, of Zach in the ICU and now I cannot see them that way. I just can't conjure up that image. I try, I can't do it, which thankfully it worked because I wouldn't want to see that, those images again, ever. So I did that 
I got to a place where, you know what, maybe I can do something because I'm, I'm like a behind the scenes guy. Mm -hmm. So I got interested in filmmaking. Didn't know a damn thing. I took a couple of courses at Adelphi, but I was in with young people and I learned and I learned. And I said, one night I woke up a year before and I said, I'm going to make a film about Zach. And from that, it came to, I'm going to make a film about the opioid epidemic. Can I need to ask you, when you decided that sure. you were going to make a film about Zach, mm -hmm. did you feel something in you shift? Like, I'm not saying this because I'm guessing. I'm saying this because I've been there. You're, you feel, and sometimes you don't even realize that you're feeling these feelings, whether it's numb or you just have no preference to things. It's almost like if someone says, what do you want for dinner? I don't care. Like, I know I got to right. eat, so I don't care. And then when you focus your energy on actually doing something as a result of this, you really feel your energy start to shift. I think it's yes. almost like now I feel like I have somewhat of a purpose coming from a situation where I felt I just, I was barely existing. I would, like you said, I was surviving. I was barely existing. And now I feel like I have a little bit of a purpose and you feel that paradigm shift. Exactly. And part of it was ego because, oh, I'm going to be the filmmaker and I'm practicing my uh, Academy Award speech. And, <laughs> but but, but, but that, that, you know, I got excited about it. I think my goal now is to try and help people in some way. So I'm used to loss, I guess. No, you never get uh -huh. used to loss. You don't. I'm used to the idea of mortality now better. And it's, you know, as I'm, I'm aging, I feel it even more, but I don't let it stop me in what I want to do because uh, my time is limited. It wasn't all doom and gloom. We had planned to go to Cape Cod in the summer of 2006. Zach died in the spring, March 15th, but we still went to Cape Cod. He loved this place, and we all did, and so we, we just said we're going to do it. Then we had a Hawaiian cruise in 2007. My daughter got married in 2010. And in between all this, we went to Caribbean islands almost every winter. And we went away to summer vacations to the Cape. We, we just traveled. I mean, that's, that was part of our, I guess, way of dealing with life, trying to get some joy and happiness. And we did. We found that along the way. And even after I retired from teaching, I started coaching in 1975, and that's always been a place I felt at home. And the world was great when I was coaching. How is life different now as opposed to maybe two years ago? What has all of that helped you with? How is, has it relieved anything? It just amazes me how, some, how strong some of these people are who've gone through what we in our community have gone through and what they do with it. Now, I understand that when it first happens, a lot of people just, they could just stay in their house all day. And I've heard stories from that too, from members of the group and through the interviews I did. But now with it so publicized, I think I might've been doing this sooner if it had happened recently, because there was nothing out there when I was, it happened to us in 2006. And I thought it was just an anomaly, but now it's, you know, no longer in one area of this country. It's all over. Why do I keep doing this? I think it's because I'm a creative person because I've always written, I would write 
poems and I wrote good letters to my sweetheart who became my wife. I was in a rock band when back the day when my hair was very long. I like to joke and you could ask all the kids in my classes. And so maybe part of that is the reason why I keep doing this because I got to do something. I mean, I put a lot of my poems on my website, which is kind of a, a way to chronicle how I felt right after Zach died. And as time went on, the poems changed. I was glad I published those poems on the blog because they've never been anywhere else but in my files. And I did it not because I'm a great poet or anything, but I wanted people to read the poems in the order I presented them because it shows my transition from that deep, deep, hopeless mourning to the middle ground of mourning where you've had a few good days, months, years. And when I got to the last poem I put on the blog, this one was a poem about hope. And so I think that was important to do, not only for myself, but for people who look at the blog and the poems to see that it's not gonna be always this deep, deep, deep mourning. So I think that helped me to become a little more confident about sharing my soul, which I do on my website, uh, here with you. And I think you need to have some emotional connection when you're doing this, because I went through a lot of emotions because of this illness that he had. You know, I see pod podcasts, I listen where there's doctors on and kind of clinical, but I think there aren't many podcasts that deal with people who've lost someone. Most of the people that I've come across, it's, it's they lose kids. So there aren't many podcasts that deal with mostly that. Telling their story will help other people, hopefully. I know it's helped people because they, they tell me so. I don't know what you call it. This became something that pisses me off because it had to happen. I don't want it to happen and happen and happen and happen. So I think that's why I'm here. That's my past. I wish it weren't, but that's the way it is. Our goal is, number one, telling the story. is a, It's a benefit to you, although sometimes when you're talking about it, you, you know, you get the pain in your stomach or you kind of, you know, you, you feel your mouth getting dry. It's hard, but it, it's, it's a help to you to get it out because when you start to talk about it, you take the power away from it. But then your story, your experience is going to help somebody else. And then well, this is also hopefully going to be a springboard for you to start your podcast so you continue to help other people because that's what you do. That's your sunshine. That's your vitamin D. I think you live in a place where your life is better when you can take care of people. That's what I'm hearing anyway. My therapist says, you know, it's like I'm addicted to coaching. And I really hasn't have been able to with this pandemic. And I miss it so much. And even when I'm done with Carrie, I'll still probably volunteer because I have a lot of knowledge. And that's something I don't want to be in this area my the rest of my life. Because somehow I'm inured to, you know, hearing the stories. But maybe I don't know if I'm really inured. Maybe it is not having the best effect upon me. But right now that's where I am. Mm -hmm. It keeps me busy. The film, the podcast, uh, the website. Right now, it's my calling.
my doctor psychologist gave me this advice. He said, with each happy occasion, one must always beware of the sorrow that will always be there. Just acknowledge it and go on and try to celebrate birthdays, weddings, whatever it is that you want to celebrate. And I want this podcast to reflect the full gamut of human emotions. I was going to call it an emotioncast, and maybe I will. If there's anything that you would like to say to the listeners before we finish up tonight. But what I would say to listeners, heal the world, heal the world. And by doing so, you might heal yourself. I mean, One podcast at a time, my friend. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. Like many of the ghosts out there, Zach's story still lives on with those who knew him and now hopefully with those who did not know of him until now. And I'm glad to share it with you. People who are struggling with OUD right now still feel the stigma, which has been going on for far too long. By sharing Zach's story and others, we hope to educate and eradicate this stigma. If you want to learn more and hear future episodes, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TheseGhostPod, and take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to see more stories like Zach's, and share your own if you like. And as Zach always said, peace out.